Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Thank you, and welcome to the Shorenstein Center's 2031 Lecture Series as we look back at journalism in the famously tempestuous 2016 presidential campaign. Our guest today is one of the reporters who covered that campaign 15 years ago, Mr. Neil McFiggin. Welcome, Neil. There's an amusing little typo in your bio. It says that you left political journalism right after the campaign and went to work for DQ. I assume that's really GQ or maybe CQ, Congressional Quarterly? No, it's DQ, Dairy Queen. I really couldn't handle a lot of stress after the campaign, and my hands still shook for about a year, which was a problem with the chocolate-dipped cones. But I've really settled in since then. I like it at DQ. You always know what you're going to get. No weird surprises. Maybe you could tell us what parts of the 2016 campaign you covered. I started out on the fat-shaming story, uh, but I got moved over to infidelity. Um, I did sexual harassment on The Apprentice. I don't know. My, my trauma support group tells me I'm repressing memories of things I covered. Uh, near the end, I got put on the crazy late-night tweeting beat, but my biggest story was the clowns in the kitchen scoop. And, uh, remind the audience about that? The week before Election Day, Donald Trump began tweeting that clowns were coming into his kitchen and eating all the cookies. Late at night, six clowns. He could see them laughing at him, but no noise came out of their mouths. I see. That's when we knew he had gone really crazy. Ivanka tied him to a chair so he couldn't tweet, but then Giuliani and Christy cut him loose. Do you have any water? There's a glass right beside you. No, I mean, that's what he said. The clowns kept asking him over and over. Do you have any water? But maybe I will have a little water. Should you really take six of those pills at a time? It's the only way I can make the campaign get out of my head. See, I just wanted to go someplace where I would never have another scoop again. So they put me at Dairy Queen because it's soft ice cream. See, you don't ever scoop. I am so sorry. I was shortlisted for a Pulitzer in 2014. I, I could have been somebody. I'm afraid that is all we have time for. Here's a radio show from those wonderful years. And now Trump deducted him as a swimming pool expense. Colin McEnroe. Yeah, and that tax return, uh, 1995 tax return. My name appears on a line under swimming pool maintenance costs or something like that. Anyway, we don't know what this campaign is doing to journalists. We don't know how much treatment they're going to need in the future. A little bit later in the show, we're going to talk to press critic Jay Rosen, who's been uh, particularly stinging uh, of late in his criticism of the press's coverage of this campaign. But what are we going to do? We're doing our best here. This is not a situation that we ever trained for. Uh, we'll also be talking uh, to a writer later on uh, who writes about politics for MTV. I didn't know there was such a thing still, but there is. And uh, she's got some interesting reporting, particularly on a race in Montana, where you'd think that this would have happened by now anyway, but there's never apparently been uh, a Native American woman serving in Congress. There's one running right now in Montana. She's a little bit of a long shot. It's a pretty red state, but we'll talk about that. We'll talk about the um, 100th anniversary of Jeanette Rankin, too, and some of the, maybe some of the races, uh, congressional races involving women around the country. So, But we're going to begin with uh, David Weigel. He is national political correspondent covering the 2016 campaign for The Washington Post. He's also uh, finishing a book on progressive rock, 
which I hope John Dankosky is going to be interviewed for. We've actually uh, talked at some length about progressive rock on one of our shows recently, too. Uh, and actually, David, it turns out that uh, Fragile is really not that great an album. Um, but that's not that's neither here nor there. So, Dave, uh, Dave Weichel, can you hear me okay? I can hear you, yes. There I'm you uh, calling from a Hillary Clinton rally in Toledo, so if you hear... <laughs> ambient noise behind me. There's people talking about how we need to be stronger together. That just makes it feel so real for us. Um, <laughs> all right. So, I mean, obviously the big story of the weekend. Uh, well, actually, I shouldn't say that. There, are, There's always competition for what the big story of the weekend is. But we're talking a lot about the tax return uh, that was located yeah. by the New York Times. You guys were out in Ohio. Um, well, you're still in Ohio if you're in Toledo. Um, and, and I know you talked to voters about, I mean, one of the big questions always is, does this mean to voters what we think it ought to maybe mean to voters. What did you find out as you talked to actual real people who cast ballots? Well, people who supported Donald Trump found a way to justify this, often kind of echoing what really, Rudy Giuliani said yesterday. Well, if Trump got away with not paying taxes for years. He's genius. You're, you know, everyone who's smart should find a way to not pay taxes. Uh, people who were undecided were you know, universally angry about it and it colored their view, in my experience, of what kind of businessman Trump was. Uh, this is something Hillary, Clinton, Hillary Clinton's campaign has been trying to do for the entire, I think, past four months at least, of puncture the image that he is a working-class hero who knows how to rebuild the economy by, I think, puncturing every part of his resume. So to an extent, that was working with people. But I'm in a place where Democrats usually win, mm-hmm. but where support had been pretty soft. And that's that's the sense I got, is people who are super soft and undecided, thought it was, it was shady of Trump to do it. Well, it, do, it does seem as though, I mean, and I certainly thought that Jake Tapper did his best in talking to Rudy, Rudy Giuliani uh, as a surrogate about this. By the way, if you were picking surrogates, would you pick Chris Christie and Rudy Giuliani? Wouldn't you pick surrogates who were kind of nicer than you were? Uh, but anyway, I, I thought Jake, Jake Tapper did his best. But one of the questions that I think hasn't been framed very much is it's not so much just that he records a, a loss of almost a billion dollars and, and might be able to parlay that into gigantic tax reductions, but he, that he's if he's not paying taxes, he's doing it while he's living a very opulent lifestyle. I mean, it's not like some guy whose clock shop got you know wiped out uh, in a bankruptcy and doesn't have any money anymore. I mean, to me, that's sort of the difference, and I'm wondering if that's turning up as part of the dialogue. A little bit. It was only one day's worth of conversation, mm-hmm. uh, but that's more than Democrats had. A, a problem they've had with this campaign I, I would compare it to uh, actually the best comparison I found is to folklore. I'm borrowing this from the the writer Mike Daisy. In in folklore, if you want to distract a vampire, you throw a bunch of grains of rice or sand in the air, and he has to stand and count them. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the way Trump handles every controversy. He <laughs> produces so much that the media is left picking up and counting. And there's been a kind of I think a callousing in the media of people saying, "Well, the last million things we heard about didn't hurt this guy, so maybe these won't either." Uh, and this felt a little different. I'm not quite sure. It's the kind of thing I think the campaign needs to pressure because the reason I thought they, they might succeed is that there's an ad on the air now from Priorities USA, which is the pro-Clinton super PAC, and it is all about Trump not paying workers who worked in his Atlantic City casino. That's something Clinton tried to talk about months ago, just who couldn't break through. So this is the this is the idea. This can be almost like a like a wedge or a funnel or something that gets that into the into the conversation because that's the, the biggest problem Clinton has had 
that she can't control is getting any of these topics discussed in the week-to-week narrative. Right. So, uh, and by the way, we're talking to Dave Wagle. He's actually at a Clinton rally in Toledo. That's the noise that you hear in the background. So, um, yeah, part of the problem is there's sort of there's sort of a burn rate on all this stuff. And so I, I agree that, you know, it seems kind of defeatist to say, well, all this other stuff didn't hurt him. Maybe this won't either. But but it also seems as though, for example, he he pretty obviously statistically was hurt by the the con the battle with the con family. Right. That right. that. But I mean, it didn't stay. Right. I mean, you know, that it burned off like fog and then suddenly you had a close race again. Uh, the two reasons I don't think it stayed. One, there, there's a sort of seesawing nature to, to coverage. And if he has a bad week, I think you start to see more stories that are negative about Clinton. Uh, it's not like we have one big meeting where, where we plan this in the media. This is the, I noticed there's an A1 of the New York Times today about or yesterday about Hillary defending her husband over affairs, that would not have cut through the fog in the con week, excuse me, the week after. The other thing is, I think, all the personal stories about Trump or all the gaffes or all the insults, uh, what has happened, it burned off the way, the way you put it, is an interesting way of, of phrasing it. What happens is it, it offends people and people walk away from him, and then they talk themselves in this morning again because of the idea that he's a businessman who will fix the economy. They almost check themselves and say, well, why am I so... Why, why would I be thrown and not vote for a successful businessman just because he has a loud mouth? Um, that, I think, was, was helped during a couple of weeks when Trump basically stuck to his teleprompter only as Semperina a few times and where Clinton was having some problems. Mm-hmm. In a typical week, it, does, it doesn't work. But that's what the Clinton people have struggled with, as I was saying before. They think there is a coherent economic argument to make. Basically, the one they ran against Mitt Romney, who was a by a lot of measures, a more successful businessman than Trump, trying to say, look at these, meet these people who are not handled correctly by him. Uh, meet these people who are stiffed, meet these people who are disappointed, let down, meet, uh, you know, look at his inability to prove that he's as wealthy as he thinks he is, that it's a fraud. Um, you know, the one thing that might help, and the, the Trump campaign is very bad at sticking to message. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing might help is the Trump campaign was hinting that it will try to spend this week arguing that he made his money the right way, and Clinton got rich on speeches. Uh, now, that's something Clinton's campaign was worried about if, say, Marco Rubio was a Republican nominee, you know, mm. somebody who could argue that he was closer to the salt of the earth than she was. It's not something they terribly uh, uh, worry about with Trump, because they, the contrast I think they're ready to make is, oh, yeah, she, uh, she made speeches. Look how much of it she donated to charity. Look how much she donated through the Clinton Foundation. These are things that have been litigated in the media, but they're, I think they're, they're readier than people think to have that kind of a fight. More, it, 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 they have to, it, it is a fight, though. It's not just them pointing and, and sputtering at what Trump just did. It's an argument they have to make. And I said all that. Uh, it's very possible Trump just says something today that throws us all off again. No, it's this is possible. It's probable. Um, one thing that you did uh, run into, and it, it's something that's come up uh, in different ways, but the, the, in this one tax return now that the New York Times has, you know, there's this notion of this loss, uh, and, and various people have brought up the fact that, well, if he's such a great businessman, how did he lose $916 million? That's a lot of money. It's so much money that the person who prepared the tax document actually had to type that number in with a Selectric because the software wouldn't put it in because it's too big. But you ran into, I think, a, um, a tool and die maker out there in Ohio who had an interesting take on that. Well, the, he was amazed that somebody could lose that much money in 1995, which is a really good economic year. Uh, very few people lost money that year. Uh, there's actually a critique of Trump 
more liberal writers, not really the Hillary Clinton campaign made uh, months ago, which is that if the guy just invested his inheritance, he would be as rich as he says he is. Mm-hmm. He just invested in stocks and ignored real estate. Um, so that was what I think the Clinton people were excited about, is if there is a way to tell people this guy you thought was a successful businessman is actually kind of a joke and a failure, they've never been able to launch that argument, not even after Mitt Romney said so. Remember, that, and Mitt Romney's kind of half-hearted, very, I think, very, very passionate speech about why to oppose Trump, but mm. kind of half-hearted follow-through. That yeah. was one of the arguments he made, is that he, he, he was a con man, he wasn't a real successful businessman. Right. So um, speaking of con men, one of the things that you've been uh, noticing over the last uh, maybe 48 hours or so, there's been, of course, this background noise for a long time of, you know, not the stuff that we're talking about right now, the stuff that can be quantified or talked about or put on record, but sort of Drudge Report stuff, stuff that's sort of coming out there. Bill Clinton has a secret black son. Uh, Hillary Clinton wants to do a drone strike on, on Julian Assange. You know, there's this kind of crypto news. And I don't know, do you think it's coming from a specific place? Is it part of a coordinated strategy or is it sort of a, a motor reflex a reflex on the part of the paranoid right? Some of it's coordinated. Uh, you know, Roger Stone, who still on the outer circle advises Trump, is behind pushing a lot of that and says so. Okay, Roger Stone had a conversation with Assange that understandably he won't divulge details about. And he will he's multiple times, especially this week, is promising Assange will drop something any moment that will end Hillary. Uh, I actually think this is more harmful than not to Trump. You see, more than anyone I think we've seen recently runs for office will embrace a conspiracy theory, will float it from the stage in the hopes that the press chases it. Um, this has not always worked well for him. I think he might have overlearned the lesson of making fun of Ted Cruz's father over the National Enquirer story that said he might have killed JFK. And he won the Indiana primary that day. I don't think that's, that's definitely not why he won the Indiana primary. But he has this confidence that because Hillary's un, um, seen as untrustworthy, you can launch anything that's going to hurt her. Uh, that's, that's being tested every, every week, I think. All right. Well, Dave Weigel, I mean, uh, just before we go, uh, tell us a little bit more about where you are right now. What kind of Clinton event is this that we hear in the background? It is a rally, an economic speech, I should say, in Toledo. Uh, her first rally in Toledo of the year. I mean, she's been to Ohio, but not not this northwest part of Ohio, which uh, she won in the primary, although less convincing than she won it eight, uh, eight years ago. And the worry that Democrats have is that even if they win um, parts of the state like this, they're not getting the, the Democratic loyalty they used to. Uh, you know, eight years ago in the primary, there were twice as many Democrats voting as this year. So they're trying to pull those people back, and this is why this Trump story is so important to them this week. Yeah, they've got something to work with. All right, uh, David Weigel, thank you so much for having us on. When you get near uh, the book on progressive rock, let us know. Right. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. I just want to say quickly that uh, the poll, I mean, one thing you know if you listen to the show a lot was I don't believe in looking at one poll. You have to look at a lot of polls. But right now the polls are kind of trending in this direction of 
you know, maybe a fairly significant Clinton bounce from all this stuff. It's kind of hard to even know where the bounce is coming from. Is it the taxes, the debate, the Alicia Machado? It's the, so many choices uh, or, or just kind of the sense uh, of kind of crazy talk coming from Trump at 3.20 in the morning when he's tweeting out stuff. But something is happening and, uh, you know, you can't, you know, you can't put too much weight on this stuff because there's been a lot of noise in the polls and the polls have been trending in a lot of uh, odd ways. They seem to kind of revert back back to a mean after the noise settles down. But it does look as though maybe Clinton has edged a little bit ahead, at least for now. All right. So we got Jay Rosen ready to go. We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about how and why the press may have screwed a lot of this up. All right. We're going to talk now about uh, how the press may or may not have screwed up a a lot of the campaign coverage and perhaps uh, bear some responsibility or maybe even a lot of responsibility for the position in which we now find ourselves. Uh, Before I put Jay Rosen on, I want to say that that will also be a big part of the conversation we have Wednesday night at Watkinson School. Uh, We're doing a forum with uh, Republican Ross Garber, a journalism professor, Vivian Martin, and journalist Danny Haar. Uh, It's called Honey, I Broke the Democracy. Uh, And we'd love for you to come. It's actually, uh, there's a lovely dinner beforehand at 6, and then we go on at 7. It benefits local nonprofits, uh, who you will also meet there. And so you have to get on the Watkinson.org website. It's at Watkinson School, and make sure you've uh, reserved a place. But we'd love to have you there. Uh, And uh, it's exciting to have Jay Rosen on, too. Jay Rosen is really one of the most astute uh, critics uh, of the press, analysts of the press. He teaches journalism at New York University. I'm teaching a course on the mass media and the presidential campaign at Trinity College right now, and I steal from Jay Rosen every chance I get. Uh, He's the author of PressThink.org, where he does uh, criticize the press and try to make sense of journalism in the digital age. He's had two posts up uh, in quick succession uh, of late about exactly what did happen and how, in fact, the press may have lost control of its ability to frame this narrative in a useful way. He's joining us now. Hi, welcome back to our show. Thanks, Colin. So um, I, I don't know if you want to begin in a particular place, but I mean, you you do jump off from the place that basically the press has a plan, possibly a self-serving plan to cover political campaigns, and it just didn't really fit the animal that they were trying to wrap it around this time. That's right. I sometimes compare uh, campaign coverage to the Christmas decorations you have in your attic, and you bring them out in December and plug them in, and they work the same way they worked last time. And that's the way campaign coverage is treated. It's like a contraption that runs every four years, and everybody knows how it works. And the truth is that that contraption depended on all sorts of norms and assumptions about the campaign and about the candidates that were invisible or, let's say, less visible because they had always been obeyed. Mm -hmm. And Trump comes along and breaks that contraption by violating all those assumptions and those norms, some of which are very serious norms of democracy, not just campaigning. And um, he doesn't crash and burn, 
he rises to the top of the polls and captures the nomination. This is a stunning series of events for which the campaign press was not prepared. Yeah, so you can sort of see this. Uh, you say uh, political journalism rests on a picture of politics that journalists and po- politicos share. Now, you can see this. Uh, you can see a symptom of it. I mean, it's a much broader phenomenon. But a nice little snapshot of it, I would say, happened recently when Trump announced to all the people who are covering him that he was going to make a statement about his position on birtherism. He got everybody to this hotel. All the people who who they they do operate on this model that says the candidates going to tell you stuff about what he's going to do, and then you're going to go cover it, and he's going to do it, and it's all going to work out fine. And you kind of need each other. He needs coverage. Uh, you need something to put on the air or elsewhere in your news hole. And, and then he showed up, and he didn't really do that until the very last second. He did a bunch of other stuff that was much more self-congratulatory. And, and there was quite you know, a lot of discontent about that. But mm-hmm. in, in a way, it's, it's a little symptom of the much larger disease you're talking about. Yes. Um, and that was an interesting moment because I think there was something so bald about it, B-A-L-D, mm. and not just manipulative, but um, almost um, cynical and defiant about it, mm. that it, it cost a kind of a line for a lot of people in journalism um, where they kind of got disgusted with themselves as well as with Trump <laughs> for doing that. Um, and then shortly after that, I think you'll recall the open declaration of Trump as a liar started to yes. appear in the press. So that there, that was kind of a, a moment. But um, there, there are so many other ways in which he violates not just expectations, but sort of norms of civilized behavior. Some of the ones that really concern me are um, campaign journalism assumes that while candidates try to elide or leave opaque parts of their record that maybe aren't so favorable to them, and they will, you know, glide over facts that are inconvenient, they'll, um, they'll try and make strategic use of, of uh, confusion the overall assumption is that they're trying to get their message out. They're trying to clarify where they stand. They are trying to let people know um, what their positions are, for example. And I think with Trump, you have a candidate who's actually trying to produce confusion, Mm -hmm. trying to, um, in a sense, undermine any consistent message so that the campaign itself seems chaotic and and almost crazy and not worth really paying close attention to, so you just vote on emotion. And if you had a candidate like that, I'm putting it as a hypothetical, I don't think it's a hypothetical, but if you had a candidate like that, then all sorts of rituals of campaign journalism don't make sense anymore. And I think this is what I have argued that is the predicament of the press, is that they are using practices that depend on assumptions that are no longer reliable. So, yeah, as you, uh, your second point in this article is asymmetry between the parties fries the circuits of the mainstream press. So what we have is a set of conventions, and, and part of the set of conventions involves the press's own 
credibility or how it perceives its own credibility or how it thinks it'll be perceived. So if you're a journalist and you think, you know, if all I ever do is say that Trump is terrible, so much more terrible for the following reasons, X, Y, Z, A, B, C, then not only his current opponent, but anybody who's ever run. And, you know, and, and if I don't really attach uh, a corresponding amount of scrutiny to Hillary Clinton's candidacy, ultimately I'm going to lose credibility. I'm going to seem like this one-sided uh, person. M- the value of my own journalistic output is going to d- decline in the marketplace because I'm, I'll just be seen as somebody who's sort of in, in the tank for a certain position. So how right. do journalists cope with that problem? Well, it's, it is a big problem, uh, and they, do, they tend to think – as you said, that they've got to sort of even it up. Um, one, of the, one of the consequences of that is that distortion of the news that drifts to the ends, towards the Democratic end or the Republican end, is considered a problem. Distortion that bunches towards the mean is not. And, um, and that's what he said, she said, or symmetrical coverage is. Now, it's taken them a long time, but they've started to cope with it by saying, um, look, uh, Hillary Clinton is a typical politician. All politicians will uh, bend the truth to gain advantage. If they think they can get away with it, they will lie. Um, She is conventional in this sense, and Trump is in a whole other category. And they'll try to make this point where they're, where they're not saying Hillary Clinton is an angel um, and she has her problems too, but – and then there's an attempt at least to provide some sort of proportion. Um, and sometimes that works. Sometimes it doesn't. It took a long time to get there. But I think there's a deeper problem, which is that Trump, as I said, is running against – norms of democracy that are far more fundamental than anything like positions in a debate. So, for example, what I mentioned, producing confusion, the whole idea that we should know where a candidate stands before we vote for them, he's running uh, against that. He is running against the basic values of pluralism and tolerance that created the United States, which, as you know, doesn't have any official religion. So so there's this other – it's almost like an extra constitutional threat that his brand of politics represents. And I think part of the problem for the press is it can't figure out a way to oppose that style of politics because it seems like picking sides in an election and they don't do that. Right. I feel as though part, part of what's going on in my own psyche – is the awareness that if this were a more typical kind of campaign, let's say Hillary Clinton was running against, I don't know, Rob Portman or Mike Pence, for that matter, I would be doing a lot of coverage of some of the problems that Hillary Clinton has. In other words, she's a candidate in a typical campaign where there really would be some things that would require quite a bit of scrutiny, you know, just a lot of baggage that she has. And But what you're suggesting, and Jim Rutenberg has suggested it too, and a lot of other people is, We just have to cover this a different way. And you do sort of wonder if people are going to accept that from us, though. I mean, or should we just not worry about whether people accept that from us? Well, part of the puzzle here is that they may not. 
especially the 40 percent or so of the country that is committed to the Republican Party. Uh, and it's not even clear that the hardcore uh, faction that Trump has captured <clears throat> is even listening to anything that the news media said, or it's, or it's even worse than that, that if it's if it's in the mass or mainstream media, it's probably worth mistrusting, you know. Mm -hmm. So the that result of culture war and propagandizing against the, the mainstream using, media, using it as um, an element in politics, has gone so far that it's not even clear that that's a persuadable public anymore. Even further than that, I think there's been a use on the right of a, of a method I call verification in reverse, where uh, journalism tries to nail things down and verify them and determine that they're true using sources and records and documents and investigation. Uh, but, when you, you, but you can take something that's been verified and try to introduce doubt about it. And when you do that, a lot of energy is released, and you can try and power a political movement or a campaign with the energy released by verification in reverse. And Trump, with, especially with the birther controversy, but other things as well, uses that kind of energy all the time. So it's not just that they're not listening to journalists. There's actually a political movement here that is being powered by the rejection of journalism. And that, again, is something I don't think our press corps knows how to oppose that or even to ha deal with it. Yeah, I, I think also another thing that Trump has discovered and political operatives on both in both parties, we know that in their more private mar moments, they have a fair amount of contempt for the press. And they'll say stuff like, well, if you throw a stick, they'll go chase it. Mm -hmm. um, and so Trump will say, well, I didn't start the birther movement. Uh, Hillary Clinton started the birther movement or, or like over the weekend, the New York Times, as I'm sure, you know, ran a story, a big story about Hillary Clinton's role in defending her husband and her family against the infidelity problems of the past. I mean, that's a story that was almost ordered at a takeout counter by the Trump campaign. There was no reason to do the story except that Trump has floated this kind of trial balloon thing that, you know, it's this story that it's an accusation he hasn't made, but he could very easily make he might make it soon. Uh, well, and by now he's made that accusation. The Times feels some obligation to go and deeply report that. So but I, I don't know. I mean, it's like if you don't go and chase the stick, you know, then then you're open to a different set of charges. The ones that you're talking about, the ones that are basically directed at the journalistic establishment. Yeah, true. Um, but if you had an independent way of determining for yourself, not by listening to the opposing candidate, but for yourself as journalists, what the important issues and problems are in the campaign that the public, readers, viewers, listeners want the candidates to address, if you knew that yourself on your own authority through your own research – through your own listening, then you wouldn't be tossed about through this tempest of charge and countercharge. You would have an independent handle on the campaign, on the race, and a bond with the public, with the voters, that the candidates can't shake. But that's not how 
campaign journalism has been done. It's been done as a horse race where the candidates get to set the terms. You react to what they're doing as well as to the polls and who's ahead. And again, that's like the that's the Christmas tree. That's the Christmas decorations. You take it out, you set it up. It runs the way you think it's going to run. You know what's going to happen. There's the early primary season. There's the uh, the intense primary season in the spring. There's the winnowing of the field. There's the conventions. There's the debates. There's the home stretch. Everybody knows how it works. And th- this year has completely disrupted that. Okay, I'm going to give you this theory that I have, which you're going to hate uh, because it diffuses responsibility too much. But um, it's something that I've talked about in my class, and I'm pretty sure I stole part of it from somebody, maybe even from you. But so I sort of talk about how, how do, why does the press do what it does during a campaign? And I, I say there's sort of four factors. One of them is just chasing money, eyeballs, viewers, clicks, whatever they're chasing. We know that Trump has been good for that early on in the campaign, in the primary season. There's no question. He got a disproportionate amount of basically unearned, earned coverage because he was good for the bottom line, Les Moonvis and Jeff Zucker and people like they've openly talked about that. So that's number one. Number two is the the mission of any individual press platform. So Politico thinks it's doing something different from what Fox News does. Fox News thinks it's doing something different from the New York Times does and so on and so forth. Every institution has an essential compact with its readers and, and a vision of what it thinks it's doing. Number three is sort of what the candidates actually do. I mean, they do stuff and you have to make decisions about how you're going to cover it. They say things, you have to decide how you're going to react to it. And number four is sort of that it's sort of the mirror of the first one, which is what what readers actually like and want and, you know, what they're eager to have from you, um, which is not disconnected from the first one, which is money. And, and so here's my theory, the part you're going to really hate, uh, which is that it's kind of like a Ouija board. You know, people, and I think the way a Ouija board is that everybody puts their hands on the pointer and everybody kind of pushes and, and the pointer moves, but it isn't just by one person pushing. It's, it's an intersection of different forces. And I feel like those, at least those four things that I talked about, kind of conspire to drive coverage, sometimes in a way where the press couldn't even really articulate why it did what it did and whether or not that made sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. I think, I think that's a good explanation for how things work in a complex system like this one where you have lots of pushes and pulls and many players. But you, you left something out with your four factors there. I figure. Uh, one, a really important factor that isn't in your description is certain things journalists do, they do to avoid criticisms or protect themselves against criticism. Yep. And um, they don't necessarily know they're doing that, or sometimes they do. They don't always know it. They don't always admit it. Um, but I feel that's like a, a huge factor in, in how they operate. And there's a reason for it. It's not It's not just defensiveness on their part. The reason is that um, journalism is done under difficult conditions, and it has to emerge daily or sometimes even hourly. And the demand is to publish whether it's ready or not, and whether you've checked it out completely or not. And despite the fact that journalists are serious about accuracy and they have generally very high standards for things, all kinds of stuff is published that isn't necessarily uh, – completely reliable mm-hmm. because there's no time. And, and the work of the journalist is exposed to criticism every day by everyone all the time. Who doesn't feel entitled to criticize CNN? Mm-hmm. Nobody. And so 
as a result of those conditions, journalists need ways to protect themselves against criticism because they get so much and because they deserve so much. And so that becomes a huge factor in how they uh, operate. And that, that's why, for example, um, Zucker is willing to hire Corey Lewandowski and, and stick with him despite all kinds of ethical problems in this appointment because he just, he just needs that Trump voice. He needs to be able to say, we've got both sides. It's, it's critical to how they legitimate themselves. So that factor should be uh, entered into your, uh, your class's thought system. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. I plead guilty to that. Because, yes, as you're suggesting, I mean, we're all on Twitter and Facebook right now. So I mean, journalists hear in real time all the time what they're doing wrong. And if what, you, what you're hearing most of the time is, well, you're in the tank for Clinton, yeah. you, you kind of want to have that column you wrote three weeks ago that you can say, no, look at this column I wrote three yeah, right. weeks ago. Exactly. Uh, That's protection. It's protection. Um, and, and But I guess, I don't know. So I guess the, the place we need to end is... So is there going to be a better model than this, or are we just going to get these Christmas decorations out uh, in 2020 and, and hope when we plug the lights in that they twinkle a little bit better than they did this time? I'm pessimistic. Um, the most likely result is that Trump will lose. The Republican Party will say, oh, we got to rethink. Hillary will be president with a Republican-controlled Congress. They'll oppose everything she does as they opposed everything Obama does. We'll be, we'll be back to gridlock and government debt shutdown. And, and all of these rituals for reporting on Washington will kick back in place. And the system, after this shock of asymmetry that I wrote about, will be restored. And it'll look like a familiar picture. And journalists will, bring, will breathe a sigh of relief and will go back to what was before. Maybe not. You know, there are there are factors here that could intervene in that situation, but that's the most likely outcome. All right. Well, we do like to cover things we recognize. Uh, Jay Rosen, uh, read more of Jay Rosen at PressThink.org. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Colin. All right. So we're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about um, stories that maybe you're not hearing that much coverage of in all the noise of this race, especially uh, the stories of certain women candidacies. Women? Right off the bat, another chance to bring it back. Republican or Democrat, the choice is yours, that's face to face. It doesn't matter, white or black, it's time to change the way we act. Cause in the end, when right or wrong, the president is whack. There I said it, I know I ain't the only one, but I'll admit it. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kion Wolf, with financial support by the Trump Family Foundation, the Clinton Family Foundation, the Trump Clinton Foundation, and the Bush Family Summer Camps. Greg Hill appeared in our intro, and our intern is Rusty Fisher. The part of Bill Curry was played by Gary Johnson. Catch up with the shows you missed at WNPR.org slash calling or subscribe on iTunes. On tomorrow's show, modern life is taking a significant toll on the female breast. And now, back to Colin.
All right, uh, we are back. Another quick reminder, October 5th, Wednesday, uh, is our forum at the Watkinson School. We'd love to have you there. So there are stories in in this campaign where the presidential top ticket tends to suck up all the oxygen. There are stories that nobody really pays attention to, or at least uh, people don't pay enough attention to. Uh, Jamie Fuller, our guest right now, who writes about politics, uh, happened to cross one of them. Uh, She calls it the historic congressional race that nobody's watching. So Jamie Fuller, first of all, let's set the stage. A hundred years ago, uh, Jeanette Rankin became the first woman elected to Congress, and she was from Montana, right? She was. uh, The 19th Amendment didn't yet exist in 1916, but women could vote in Montana uh, for two years. She became the first woman in Congress, and she also uh, ran again in 1940 and holds the distinction of being the only person in Congress to vote against both world wars. Yeah, that's a pretty remarkable kind of span of uh, of two different elections. So uh, the story that you're reporting on this week is about Denise Juno, uh, who is attempting to do a similar thing in, in Montana, although she's got some things that make her even a little bit more different. Tell us about Denise Juno. Am I saying it right? Is it Juno or Juno? Yep, it's uh, Denise Juno. Mm. And uh, the funny thing, well, I don't know if it's funny to, to say this, but Jeanette Rankin was also the last woman uh, to get in Congress in Montana. So if Juno won, she'd be the first woman in Congress in Montana since 1940. Uh, She'd be the first openly gay woman to ever serve in Congress from Montana. And she'd be the first American Indian woman in Congress ever. Which seems, first of all, amazing that this would be the first that, you know, in the long history uh, during which this has been possible, it it hasn't happened. So, um, yeah, so all of those things make her quite um, remarkable. Now, Montana is a pretty red state. I think we basically know its electoral votes are going to go to Donald Trump, barring some kind of miracle or or something. Uh, Then those things do tend to be happening in this campaign. So how good a chance? Obviously, there's there's not coattails. Uh, What is uh, Denise Juneau pinning her hopes to instead? Well, that's always the hard thing about trying to figure out what's happening in these uh, rural districts. Uh, As uh, I don't know if your uh, listeners will know, but Montana only has one house district. It's the largest by population in the entire country and the second largest by size. Uh, So you're working with a lot of people and it just makes up the entire state. So if the electoral votes go to Trump, the voters usually do, too. So but Montana also is uh, notorious for split ticket voting. So you're counting on that. Uh, you're counting on the historical excitingness of your race to help you out. And just hoping that uh, you can have voters think of you as an independent from what's happening in the race above, which everyone who's watching this race is knows it's very hard when you're dealing with a presidential race like this one. Does she have a particular issue or, or two issues that she's really emphasizing? Well, public lands are always big in Montana. They're big all across the West in races up and down uh, this year. She's also talking a lot about tribal sovereignty. She grew up on the Blackfeet Reservation. Her family is big in uh, American Indian politics in Montana, so she knows what she's talking about there. And she's also been the... Uh, superintendent of public education since 2008. So 
that's obviously a big issue too. So this this uh, race, although we you're saying correctly that it competes for attention with the national race, which gets more attention, it does have a little bit of echoes of the nat- national race, the way that you've reported it, Jamie Fuller, including the just this, the notion that you, ha- on the one hand, have um, have Denise Juneau, although I mean Hillary Clinton obviously is not a lesbian Native American woman. There's a sort of sense of the person who's kind of come up through the meritocracy. It's an even more extreme case uh, with uh, with Denise Juneau. Obviously. She's born to very humble circumstances. She winds up eventually after really some some ups and downs and bumps and bruises um, at uh, Harvard for, for a graduate degree, right? Mm-hmm. And you want to say a little bit more about that? Yeah, no. Uh, she's been all over. Uh, her mom uh, was the first American Indian woman in the state Senate. Uh, her dad was on the tribal council. So political background. And then her family's really big in education. So you have that background. It's very Montanan in a way, but it's also uh, not something that we've ever seen in um, Montana in Congress. Um, and then you have the other parallel I draw is you have the current representative, the incumbent, Ryan Zinke, uh, who was one of the few representatives who was at the Republican convention uh, with Donald Trump and also is very big on law and order and national security in a way that you hear echoed on the national stage. Yeah, and so he's a former Navy SEAL uh, and very vocal on a lot of these issues. And, when, and once again, you feel uh, like, I don't know, I've never even been to Montana. I don't know anything about Montana <laughs> at all. But, I mean, it, my crude, superficial impression of Montana is that's going to probably play a little bit better with a Montana electorate, a guy who's, you know, who's a former Navy SEAL and, you know, is kind of saluting all the right flags, so to speak, uh, as opposed to somebody who, who maybe does look to Montanans like, kind of the local version of Hillary Clinton, somebody with, you know, some pretty impressive academic credentials and some pretty impressive credentials even within the world of the government itself. I don't know. With this, the mood of change that's afoot of the, in the land, the rejection of intellectual credentials and the notion that, that people who have been in the government for a while and know how to run things are actually a problem rather than a solution. seems like she's, yeah, no. yeah go ahead. Uh, Zinke has all the benefits of being an incumbent. You have the conservative base. And on top of that, the, the, the biggest thing that I haven't mentioned is we have no polling on this race. It's uh, There's no money for polling in Montana. You usually get one poll if you're lucky for these kind of races. So we have no idea where this race stands. So that's, that's what part of the reason why I was uh, drawn to it at this point, because you have all of the historical stuff that could happen. You have national readers who don't really know what it's like on a American Indian reservation or what it's like to campaign in a state district that's so large. Uh, but we really have no idea where this race stands. Although one indication sometimes, although it's not really that reliable a weather vane, is to what degree do the national parties take an interest in this? And the answer, according to your article, is that they've both evidenced some interest in this. They've put people in there to campaign or put resources in there for the campaign that don't come from inside Montana. They come from the national efforts to win elections by each party, right? You know, both candidates have been successful in fundraising nationally. They've had uh, representatives from other states come and visit them to campaign. So people are paying attention to it, uh, which seems to augur well for the race's excitingness. But I'm, I'm assuming that a poll will probably come out in the next couple of weeks that will help clarify whether those 
inklings uh, from the national parties were correct or not. I mean, it seems also one of the questions is going to be in terms of the people who might uh, support uh, Denise Juneau is how enthusiastic are they about voting, right? I mean, this is the same problem that Hillary Clinton in some ways is still trying to deal with is does she have an enthusiasm gap? Do people who should support her or, or do support her ideologically who see their interests as coinciding uh, with their own, uh, do they plan on voting? Are they going to get out to vote? I assume that's actually one of the big questions for Denise Juneau. Can she turn out what should be her base? Yeah, no, uh, and that's something I try to mention in my article, too, is the one big question is the native vote, uh, which typically doesn't turn out uh, during midterms of the primaries. So I haven't voted in a while. There's, uh, it's not clear whether there's excitement about the presidential race and whether they'll turn out anyway for Juneau, because it's a traditionally Democratic base, uh, but it's also often hard to vote on reservations. You're going to be far away from a polling place, if there's uh, polling places brought to the reservation, they're not going to have the same hours often as a traditional place. So those are all big questions uh, that have yet to be answered, too. That all sounds, sounds so incredibly wrong. I mean, it, shouldn't be, it should be exactly as easy to vote on a Native American reservation as it is anywhere else. That just seems like one of the many wrong things about this. Uh, well, I think you see those things in rural districts anywhere. Uh, I grew up in upstate New York, and sometimes you have to drive a while <laughs> to get to a polling place in, in big districts, too. All right. Well, uh, Jamie Fuller, uh, we'll find out whether history is going to repeat itself 100 years uh, from the from the year that uh, Jeanette Rankin uh, broke that barrier, became the first woman to serve in Congress. She was from Montana. Uh, this woman now running, Denise Juneau, she represents the breaking of two other barriers, uh, a Native American uh, and an openly gay person. So thank you so much for joining us. Great reporting there for MTV. Thanks for having me. All right. So uh, uh, that was Jamie Fuller. Uh, as we're wrapping up the show here, let me once again encourage you um, to come to Watkinson on uh, Wednesday night. Uh, come join us for dinner, uh, late dinner served beforehand, and then we'll be in the amphitheater uh, for a conversation about kind of not just about the press, but everything what, like what went wrong and how broken are some of our basic institutions that allow us to have elections that go in a reasonable, peaceable way. And how are we going to put them back together? It's a tall order for our panel, but they can do it. It's Ross Garber. It's Dan Haar. It's Vivian Martin. All right. Thanks very much to Betsy Kaplan, who produced for today's show. Uh, and to Kyone Wolf, who's there on the board making us sound good. We are actually ending with music from the tribe of Denise Juneau. This is from the Mandan Hidatsa, I hope I said that right, tribe, which she belongs to. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow with a show about the health and well-being of the female breast. Last time that Trump paid any taxes, Clarissa could explain it all. So, Clarissa, if you're listening, and I'm pretty sure you are, can you explain this?